And we're live. So today is going to be a bit of a different episode. I have a guest on the phone, Dr. Palin. And Hello. Hi. So you're the head of the physics department. Is that right? No, I'm the, I was the director of the planetarium for many years. And when you saw me last, that's what I was still doing. Now I've moved over. I'm director of the observatory um, oh, wow. at Weber State. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you're at, so as the director of the observatory, do you have control of a telescope? I do. <gasps> oh, are you serious? Did you, so how good is the Weber State telescope? It's really pretty um, amazing, actually. So it's a 16-inch telescope that's on the roof there, and it's 100% remote and robotic. So this fall, I had this class with students where they were connecting to my computer in my house via Zoom, and then my computer at my house was running the telescope on the roof. And we took a ton of data, and they all wrote papers about it, uh, and we're working on getting a couple of those papers published. Oh, that is awesome. So even with... COVID, I mean, that. I mean, it makes perfect sense that, I mean, you just basically, instead of putting your eye up to the telescope, we now could put a camera up to the telescope. Right. And, right. and now not even can we put a camera there, but we can run it from basically anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you, you could, you could allow if, if uh, someone on the other side of the world had interest in looking at our sky, yep, they could potentially patch in. Uh-huh. Oh, that is so cool. I never even thought about that. My wife bought me um, for one year because I got a bonus at work for being there for five years, and I was going to pick out of the catalog a little telescope. And mm-hmm. she talked me into getting luggage. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> it was kind of funny. I was really bummed out about it. So I kept threatening that, like, well, fine, I'm just going to use my own money, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a telescope. And what I didn't know was that she had already bought me a telescope, but was waiting to give it to me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And <laughs> so we've got to do some cool things. And the the thing that I struggle with is I'd like to get some better pictures, but I can, I with this little telescope, I've been able to see the rings of Saturn mm-hmm. and the moons around Jupiter. Yep. And I didn't. And doesn't that blow your mind to see the moons of Jupiter? Oh, they like look with your own eye. Yeah, they look yeah. so far apart. <laughs> I I remember the night that I was looking at it, and it was right around when the two came together uh, on the twenty third of December. I think it uh-huh. was. Yep. Um, I remember I saw those four little dots of light, and I kept thinking, "There's got to be some dust or something in my telescope because these they're so far away from the planet." Yep. This has got to be an illusion. Something's going on with my telescope. And then my wife, I was bummed out because I couldn't get any pictures through my phone trying to hold it up to the eyepiece. And uh, which, I mean, I don't know why I thought that was going to work anyways. But uh, she was super excited to show me uh, pictures other people had taken. And like, no, look, those are the moons. And I was, it was, it was super thrilling because, I mean, I look at, I look at the moon all the time and I feel like I discover just looking at our moon, I discover a new feature that I like. Right. And then being able to look out and see those moons, that was, and I felt bad that I didn't even realize I could see them, but watching the two kind of like waver together and then the rings on the planet on um, Saturn. Oh, it was so cool. Yep. But it, was, it was pretty amazing, even to me. And, you know, I'm a professional <laughs> and I still went out with my little telescope and my binoculars and took a look just because it was cool to see. 
Well, it's it's kind of an addic- uh, an addicting thing. Like once you get good at finding an object in the sky, you just want to find more objects. Yep. And I want to buy a, a more expensive telescope, and I like I want to look at Mars a little bit closer, and and almost go back and and see. I can't remember the name of the guy who drew the maps of the roads on Mars. Lowell, Percival Lowell. Percival Lowell, yeah, and yeah. I remember that he had he had surmised, of course, that there was a there must be a civilization. They've built roads just like we did, <laughs> right? You know, and which, it was all an optical illusion. Oops. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to be able to see what he saw, even through you know just a, a cheap sort of backyard telescope. I think it would be mm-hmm. to me. I think it's awesome. So I'm constantly uh, trying to excite my daughter. She's eight um about those kinds of things so we're constantly setting up the telescope and unfortunately in the winter it's hard to get her to come out uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. but i've recently got her uh some christmas le- lectures from richard dawkins about evolutionary biology and she seems to be really excited about that a little bit more than space uh-huh so which I mean, kind of bums me out because I was hoping she'd be a little bit more excited about space. But then I got to thinking like, hey, you know, they're going to need biologists on Mars and you're about the age that you could go to Mars. So, <laughs> you know, like, let's combine the two. But she, so she loves the cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. And yep. So I've been I've been excited about that. But I was surprised because I played her Richard Dawkins Christmas lectures and I've never like she just sat and watched in like awe yeah and i you know so i mean i i, I can't really complain because i'm excited about biology as well but my daughter is actually the reason why i wanted to talk to you today um because she is going to be facing a different world than i think you and i have had to face yeah i think that's probably true yeah and the yeah. reason is we are burning fuel mm-hmm at a crazy rate and we're changing our environment and people don't seem to understand how important it is. A lot of people, I shouldn't say all people, but a lot of people are not understanding the consequences this could have. Right. And I got to go to a bar uh, with my wife because she works at the same place you do. And so she's all about supporting the teachers when they go out and do this. And you did a lecture. Would you call it a lecture? Maybe a presentation. A, pre- maybe. a presentation. So you did a presentation at the bar about yeah. climate change, mm-hmm. and you kind of got heckled a little bit in, in that. <laughs> did you expect to be heckled? Um, I have been heckled before, so I don't really. I just I'm always ready to be heckled. I'm like a comedian. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> you do, you do have, all the questions all the time. <laughs> you do have to stand up in front of students all the time, and we know how students can be. Right. Even right. if even and if then, they're paying for it. Right. Exactly. And then physicists um, have this kind of um, cultural value of always questioning everything all the time. And so, when you give a talk at a physics conference or an astronomy conference, um, you're going to get deep questions right away like how do you know are you sure you did that right you know you're gonna get that physicists talk back is that what you're saying that's what i'm saying nice (laughs) they never take anything at face value and they always ask more questions so it's not as big a uh it's not as threatening to me anymore uh when people heckle me as it maybe 
is for most people or as it was when I was younger. So. Do you think that's almost like a direct correlation to like the age of the study? I mean, it's, it's a little bit of the, I mean, physics really isn't that old of a science, right? Um, well, it depends on how you think about it. If you're thinking about like rolling balls down ramps and stuff that goes all the way back to Galileo. And then, um, he was even drawing on a lot of stuff from Greeks, right. That's kind of engineering related. So, um, so I think there's, I just think that scientists and especially physicists um, really want you to, to convince them. Sure. Right. They don't, they're not just going to sit there and believe you. They want to be convinced. And the way in science, one thing I think people don't understand about science is that the way you get ahead is not by agreeing with people. Right. Nobody cares if you prove Einstein right again. Oh You're yeah, no, that makes sense. And get a Nobel Prize if you prove him wrong, right? <laughs> right? So the motivation is always to challenge, 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 challenge the data, challenge the results, challenge the interpretation. And so this is a this kind of um, heckling kind of thing that happens where people are calling your statements into question is just something you get used to, and you eventually it takes a long time. Um, but you eventually stop taking it personally and you just come prepared, like, right, people are going to ask me and that's actually good, right? If people challenge me, then that forces me to go back and maybe test an idea I hadn't thought of or go a little bit further or become or, or develop the, the argument a little bit more. So is there an ex- it didn't bother me at all. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, it didn't bother me at all when he started heckling me from the back row there. Um, the yeah. only time, the only thing that really kind of stuck for me was that at some point he said something like, um, why hasn't anybody ever told us about this before? And I, <laughs> and I thought, ah, <laughs> um, I've been giving talks like this for decades. Uh, and every, like, so is, there are so many places where you can get this information. Um, and oh, then he said, don't you think it's your fault that I don't know about this? And I'm like, no. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I actually remember. You were like, you, no, it's not. And I, uh, I remember I was sitting on the opposite side of the room of him. And I was thinking, well, what about Bill Nye? Bill Nye's been talking about this. And Neil deGrasse yep. Tyson's talked about this on Fox. So if you get your news from Fox, you probably get your programming from Fox. How have yep. you not seen somebody talk about this? Right. I feel like even like uh, Family Guy has cracked jokes on their show, and and the Simpsons have talked about global warming. Right. And, and at his age, he must have heard about it in seventh grade. Like his teachers told him. Yeah. <laughs> I remember learning about it. I remember doing a class, and they gave us all cookies, and we had to pick out the chocolate chips. And then the teacher came around and was like. You know, so we start digging out the chocolate chips and uh, with, you know, she gave us like a uh, basically a chopstick or whatever. And so we start trying to mine the chocolate chips. And then she came around and was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you start mining, I need you to draw a picture of your cookie. And we were like, well, we just started digging. And then the teacher was like, oh, it's kind of hard to put it back together the way it was now that it's ruined, isn't it? Oh, and that, like that was that was uh I, I mean you can I mean I'm 30 now 33 and I and I clearly remember that lesson, right? And right. I was just like, oh geez, I'm a moron. I can't believe I didn't preserve my cookie. <laughs> so wait, I think uh, this might have broader implications. <laughs> yeah, and that that always kind of stuck with me. And so yeah. I'm kind of 
you know, I was raised in a conservative family and uh, they were LDS or they, they are LDS. I'm, I'm no longer LDS, but uh, it, I've always kind of been the black sheep of the family. I mean, like the day that Elon Musk uh, talked about his cyber truck, I put in a hundred dollar deposit. <laughs> you were like, yes, please. Yeah. And then my, uh, uh, like, I mean, you can say what you want about Elon Musk personally, but he is going to help save the world through i mean radical technology changes and i mean his his solar roofs uh you know they don't look like the traditional solar panel um and right. then his tesla or i don't know if he calls it the tesla wall but it's the basically the power, a, wall. The power yeah. wall he's yeah. he's, he's going to change the world i think and so i i've kind of jumped on board with him mm-hmm. and i guess my next question as far as like the hecklers go when you started giving that speech about climate change and what we're doing to ruin the environment, which we'll get into. Um, and I was thinking about the heckler. How do you, how do you deal with, and and I'm struggling with this around the election this year is how do you deal with people that believe a conspiracy is afoot, and just, they don't seem to be shaken because I, I just watched a documentary about flat earthers and I'm like, I, so I had to devise an experiment in my mind on how to prove the earth is round. But then I got to thinking that even if I did it, so one of these flat earthers is going to be like, well, I don't trust your data. How do I know you don't work for the big flat earth company? Right. And I mean, I've, I've heard them accuse educators like you as being part of the conspiracy. How do you deal with that? Right. Not very well. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, it's a giant attack on my integrity, right? So basically, they're saying when they say that, they're saying you're lying to me and you're lying to me on purpose and you're lying to me to trick me, right? Right. Um, and I, I find that personally, that is really painful. This is really painful. Yeah, it's kind of offensive. It's super offensive. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, how do you know that? Or, you know, I disagree with your argument or whatever. But to say that you're lying, to, that I'm lying to them on purpose in order to deceive them, usually in order to get rich. Um, yeah. I find, yeah. That's an interesting <laughs> one is, is that you're a part of that conspiracy for the check. And I mean, last I check, even college professors aren't paid very well. No. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody I know is like, yeah, getting super rich off the idea that, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know where they think the money's coming from, and I don't know where they think it's going, but, uh, but it's clearly not coming to me. So, um, so, but the, but it's a bigger question, right? And uh, about lying and untruths in the media and in the country, and I think. Uh, we are sitting right now at this unbelievable time when we're starting to see the consequences of those big lies and the conspiracies that get believed uh, come home to roost. And there are conspiracies about climate change and there are conspiracies about flat earth theory and there are conspiracies about um, Q, right? And so I think all of these are kind of tied together and, as an individual and as an individual scientist, what I can do is speak the truth and present the data and say, here's, here's, here's what we measure. 
Yeah. And here is when we run simulations, taking these measurements, and we run the measurements way back to like 1910, and then we run the simulations forward. We can reproduce what happened in 1930 and 1940 and 1950 and 1960 and and it has taken me a really long time to recognize that some people's decisions and some people's beliefs are not driven by objective reality, but they're driven by wanting to be part of something and wanting to follow a particular person, finding mm -hmm. someone particularly charismatic and wanting to believe what they say. I think that's that, taken me a really long time. I think that plays <laughs> out. Yeah. I, I, like, as you say that, I, I can only think as back to this last election and what's happened on the Capitol mm -hmm. and all those things. And it's it, for, it seems like really for the first time we have a huge public figure. It's not just like some underground talk radio show or a, 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 an obscure YouTube channel that's spouting the conspiracy. It's somebody with a microphone right. that we all kind of have to listen to. Because mm -hmm. you, you can't, whether we want to or not. <laughs> yeah, you really can't ignore it at this point, right? And no, right, and he's and people are just like, oh, finally somebody's saying what I thought, and they're yeah. it, it's a weird. I mean, I I like to, I'm an optimist for sure. So, I mean, like I, uh, me and me and my other co-host, we were arguing about the runoff election in Georgia, and he kept saying, "There's no way, there's no way, they're not going to get those two senators." And I was like, "Dude, have hope, they're going to do it." And then they did it, and I got to call and say, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> which um, is always overboarding. <laughs> yeah, which is probably the best part about being a scientist, right? Is when you get to say, ha, 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 right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, it, it's just, it's a weird thing to watch people that, for the most part, I know they're smart. They're not dumb people. But they just get caught up in this sort of, like, tidal wave of emotion. And the next thing you know, the Illuminati is... uh involved somehow right and, and lizard people the, oh my gosh lizard people the lizard people exactly no. and i have to i have to laugh a little bit because one of the things that i noticed is that it's almost like the opposite is true and it's like you say uh you know you've been accused of taking money to perpetuate the round earth model or the uh climate change model and but really the opposite is true we have uh a famous meteorologist named Joe Bastardi, he's taking checks from oil and gas to go on giant meteorologist platforms and denounce climate change. Yep. So it's like the opposite is true, but you couldn't, there's no way that you could convince someone who believes that you're part of the conspiracy that that's false. So far, I have had very little success trying to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to say it can't be done. Um, yeah. But I have not had a whole lot of success. Um, and I have had people I know who I know fairly well um, straight up accuse me of of crazy, like crazy, crazy things. Um, and and it's really difficult to to say, OK, I get where you got that. But think about me. 
Yeah, you know me. You're talking to. I'm not a representative of some giant cabal. This is me. I'm a person, and you know me, and we've like had lunch together and stuff. So, you know, (laughs) um, so I, but it's very difficult thing. And uh, as a scientist, I know that I don't attack this in the right way, right? So I know that me presenting more data in as many different venues as I can think of and actually going to bars to give talks about climate change. Yeah. Um, Basically for free too, right? I mean, you weren't getting, free, yeah. you, you weren't paid to be there. No. Huh? You got a couple free and, well, drinks. I think, I think I got a couple free drinks. Yeah. yeah for well, talking for an it, hour and yeah. getting heck. So we'll be honest um, about that part. <laughs> right. <laughs> Straight up. That's what I got. Um, and then, So, but I know that kind of presenting this logical argument over and over and over again is not um, as effective, obviously, as the merchants of doubt are at at selling doubt, right? Um, But but it's what I've got. Anything else that I would do would feel um, uh, like a lie. Do we need or like I was trying to trick people? Do you think scientists need, or not just scientists, but science itself, do you think we need a doomsday PR rep? (laughs) Do we need to start turning the tables and and like show the conspiracy the other direction and try to build our own Illuminati? (laughs) That might be the answer. That might be how we save the world. Maybe. Maybe. I think think we have a better option, and our better option is to um, make the economics case. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So so it turns out that if you and this is not my area of specialty, but it turns out that if you do the economics forecasting and you ask how expensive is it to do nothing, how expensive is it to do something and Uh how expensive is it to do as much as possible as quickly as I can? Guess which thing is least expensive in the long run? The one where we get on the ball, right? Right. Yeah. The most expensive thing we can do is nothing. No, that makes perfect. And it's not just expensive economically. If you think about it, like I said, I have a little girl. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about crop failures and radical uh, uh, die-offs in the environment because we're changing the environment faster than evolution can take place. Exactly. It's It's not a gradual warming over, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Right. We're, we're warming up the earth really fast right now. Yep. So, uh, speaking of that, and one of the reasons why I wanted you to, to, to come on was to talk about the, the the drive behind climate change. What is it specifically that we're doing that's causing this? So, fundamentally, the problem is burning of fossil fuels. So, the thing about fossil fuels, first, think about where they come from, right? So, we call them fossil fuels because they come with the fossils. They are not fossilized dinosaurs, but they are fossilized plants. Um, Or they are, sorry, they're the remains of plants that died around the same time where we can dig up all these fossils. So they're old, um, buried a long time ago. It took 350 million years to lay them down. So all the coal beds, all the oil, all of that stuff that we're digging out of the ground and burning um, took 350 million years to make. And we've burned more than half of it in a hundred years. Oh wow! So that's, that a num- you- that's a number that I didn't know. More than half of it. More than half of it. Wow! 
So one of, the, one of the conversations that I had with uh, my dad, who's a climate change doubter, was mm-hmm. he told me that we had, just in the United States, we've got 4,000 years worth of coal. And I, I, I just immediately, I was like, that number is not true. Right. I know, like, without so, even Googling it, I know that number's not true. And I think when I looked it up, we have something like 200 years, maybe, in the entire world. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So... Over millions of years, this these uh, and and a lot of people think that you know petroleum products come from dinosaurs, but realistically, it's uh, plant life, right? Yeah, it's basically peat. So, right? In, so you know how people burn peat? Oh, yeah. in Ireland, right? So sure. it's that stuff, and then you compress it, so it's denser for a long, long time. For a long, long time. Yeah, and then so that. And, and the re, the way the carbon got into that material is that peat uses photosynthesis and it produces the plant material, which is made out of carbon, right? The, the building right. blocks of life. Yep. Okay. Um, so as we're burning it, that carbon's released in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And, and carbon is really good at trapping heat. Carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. Really good at okay. Yep. So let me talk about, just for a second, about greenhouse molecules, because there are lots, actually. Oh, please okay. do. Yes, I'd like to know. Yeah. So so the thing about molecules and why some of them are greenhouse molecules and some of them are not. So carbon monoxide, right? You know that's deadly if it gets trapped in your garage and you breathe it, but it's not a greenhouse molecule. And the reason that it's not a greenhouse molecule is that in order to absorb infrared radiation, molecules have to be able to bend And a molecule that has only two atoms in it, that bond can't bend in the middle because there's no node for it to bend around. Can you picture that in your head? I can, yeah. Yeah. So, like, if you had a snake with two vertebrae, those two vertebrae, it it could turn and look a different direction, but it couldn't bend its body. You Mm. need at least three things in order for something to be able to bend. So, molecules with... Oh, go ahead. Carbon's kind of like a chain... In, it, in itself, isn't it already? So carbon is just a dot, but there are often, carbon has this great facility for getting together with other atoms, so it can make long chains. Oh, so th- that's right. Okay, so it, it's able uh-huh. to make those bendy molecules that are capable of retaining that heat. Right. Okay. So the CO2, you have a C in the middle and you have an O on either side. Now you have like your snake with three different vertebrae in it. It can bend around the middle one. So it can absorb infrared radiation. Water is H2O, right? So it's an O in the middle with two H's, and they're kind of at an angle already, but it can bend around that angle and absorb infrared radiation. So any molecule that has three or more atoms in it can be a greenhouse gas. Some of them are better than others at absorbing infrared radiation. One of the most absorptive greenhouse molecules is methane, but it doesn't last very long in the atmosphere. And why so is that? Um, because it gets torn apart really easily. It's a fragile molecule, so oh, it's okay. torn apart um, by UV radiation and bouncing into other molecules and stuff. That's so it doesn't last as long. Part of the reason why we could burn methane, right, is because it's easy to break? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But CO2 is really strongly bonded, Yeah. so it sticks around for a really freaking long time. Right. It just stays. And once you put it in the atmosphere, it's going to stay there for a really long time unless a plant picks it up and uses it 
um, to make more plant. <laughs> right. Which um, then so, we could potentially burn and re-release into the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. So, so one way to think about climate change and what we're doing with climate change is back your brain up and think about when those fossil fuels were laid down. So you had the whole entire planet covered in lush, really lush plant growth, like the Amazon times three, right? Whole right. planet covered in that stuff. Imagine lighting it all on fire. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. that's what you're talking about. <laughs> I'd, ne- I'd never really thought about that, but you're right. Like, that's a crazy, that's a crazy concept because, I mean, we're talking, if we rewound the clock back that, that far, we're almost to the times of Pangea. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, not quite that far, but. Yeah. Um, but we're but, looking at a really lush green. I mean, everything would have been covered in veg- vegetation, really, except for the poles. Right. Wow. And then, so I mean, we can just look. We can just look at a recent event in history, and think about what that might do with Australia. The fire that was in Australia uh, last yeah. year, or, or the ones in California this last summer. Yeah, and it's right. it's kind of seems like we're on track for the same year. I think Australia is already struggling with their wildfire season. Yep, it used to be that wildfire season was you know six months out of the year, and it's now eleven. Holy cow. Right? I, like, now that I think about it and, like, the news cycles from just, just if we go back to when I was a kid, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. Yep. And I remember, like, it was a rare thing to have, like, a pretty good forest fire that we could all see in the state of Utah. Yeah. And now it seems and like every year we're just used to it. Every year, and there's multiple of them, right? There's more than one, usually. Yeah. yeah. So these are, and that's a prediction, right, that was made more than 40 years ago. Um, people actually first started thinking about the problem of climate change in the 1880s. Um, and a guy said, hey, wait, maybe there's a problem with digging up all this carbon and burning it. Um, and then it wasn't until right around the 1970s that we started to have fast enough computers to be able to calculate and make predictions. And then those predictions have done nothing but get better um, over the last 50 years. It's not like scientists made a program and then said, you quit now, right? Like right. we're like Microsoft. We're always making it better. Sure. <clears throat> <laughs> for a given definition of better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but one of the big predictions is that we should see more fires, bigger fires, longer fire seasons, um, and that's a thing that we see. And we should see more hurricanes and stronger hurricanes, and the hurricane season should last longer. And if you remember this year, we got um, out of the – english alphabet and into the greek alphabet yeah with tropical storms and that's not a thing that's like uh, i remember (laughs) i remember when it kind of happened like someone was talking about what happens when we get to z and they were like oh well we we kind of we kind of knew this was going to happen so we've decided to switch to the greek alphabet when it happens yep and it was like i i remember thinking like how clearly in my mind i was like we knew it was going to happen but we're not doing anything about it we could have we could have started working on this problem before. Yep. And so so now we've we've burned these fossil fuels and we have these flexible molecules in the atmosphere right. that are absorbing UV light. UV uh, infrared. Infrared light. And infrared uh-huh. light is we can feel infrared on our skin, is that right? That's right. So oh. we feel infrared light as heat. Right. 
Yeah. And so obviously when you go out in the sun, you can feel heat. We know the planet's absorbing heat from the sun, but now the carbon is, or the carbon monoxide or dioxide, I'm sorry. That's right. Is absorbing that and hanging on to it for longer. And the trouble is that it bounces it around in the atmosphere, right? So it stays in the atmosphere longer, all that infrared radiation, and that just heats up the the Uh, atmosphere, which heats up the ground and the ocean. Almost like a greenhouse. Almost like a greenhouse. It just traps the heat inside. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I mean, to you, long-term... I mean, obviously, for for whatever reason, we're in love with our fossil fuels. They're easy to burn, which we use that heat to turn a turbine with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, Long term, uh, what do you see the solutions as being? I mean, is there... I know that um, there's a process in which they can capture nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. To uh, they, use, they actually use that as part of the fertilizer industry. Right. Um. But just setting up a bunch of CO2 capturing devices is not the answer, right? Yeah, that's, that's, I think the, the problem with that is that the scale is so much larger, right? So this amount of CO2 that you need to suck out of the atmosphere is so much bigger than the amount of nitrogen that you have to suck out in order to provide fertilizer. Oh, really? Yeah. And that fertilizer industry, by the way, um, developed after World War II as a way to um, repurpose a whole bunch of machinery that was made to make bombs in World War II. Oh, really? So, oh, that makes uh-huh. sense because a lot of explosives uh, explosives use nitrogen. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was a way to, to repurpose those to some other peacetime, you know, application. But, but my point is that those factories were already built. They were built for wartime. And then we just repurposed them for fertilizer. We might never have done that whole nitrogen fertilizer thing if we hadn't already been in this gigantic war. So um, the thing about sequestering carbon, which is the like technical term for what you're talking about, is that what are you going to do with it? Like, so like it's fertilizer has a, an end thing. You can sell it, right? Right. We can, (laughs) can, yeah, we can sell it to people. Yeah. But if you take all this carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, now you have all this carbon dioxide. You can't sell it to people. It's a gas um, at normal temperatures and pressures, so you can't let it go again. You can't just, like, pile it up in a corner. Like, that's what we do with sulfur from um, power plants. Sure. It used to cause acid rain, right? Right. Now, we solve that problem. We take the sulfur out. But sulfur is a solid at normal temperatures and pressures. So you can just pile it up over there in the corner and worry later about what you're going to do with it. But once you take this gas out of the atmosphere, what do you do with that gas? It's still a gas. So storing it then is a real problem. So we'd have to have giant pressure pressure vessels, basically. Yeah, and, and it's not a product. Yeah. So you can't rely on the capitalist market to find a solution to that particular problem because there's nobody to sell it to. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting is I work in the concrete industry and we buy waste um, in the form. It's called fly ash from Mm -hmm. uh, power plants. Right. And they burn something. I don't know if it's coal or or, uh, I don't think it's natural gas, but uh, no, it's coal. Yeah. And it produces this fly ash. We actually mix it into the concrete. And so it's trapped that way, um, but that's the solid part of it. That's not the gas part of it. 
Mm -hmm. So we would end up having to, as a society, we would have to figure out a way to store uh, a gas. And we'd probably have to do it in large tanks. Right. And it'd have to be pressurized because out in the, when it's at room or when it's at atmospheric pressure, it's huge. Right. And so we can't, obviously we can't build another place to, to put it. Right. Because so we'd have to compress it down, and then and now yep. now we're running the risk of a pressure vessel explosion, exactly for for long term long term storage. Right, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Right, so but, it's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> and so I mean, really, the best way to do it to store that CO two would probably be to stop making it and allow trees and plants mm-hmm. to sequester it itself. Because they use yep. that, that's basically their oxygen. Right. And But we need to stop dumping it into the air, is the big yep. thing. Yep. So, so there's this famous, like, saying my cowboy neighbor is always saying, right? Like, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. <laughs> right? Oh, genius. So, so you can't, you want to just, you want to stop putting so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And then we can start to, I mean, people can, we can, we can multitask. But we need to stop putting the CO2 out in the atmosphere and then also at the same time start trying to figure out how to pull it out again. Like what kinds of plants can we plant that can grow fast enough? They can suck up enough CO2 and then maybe we cart them off to old coal mines and bury them again. Right? Oh, rebury the plant matter. Yeah. Just take the plant. Let the plants compress it. Cut it down, move it over there, bury it. Right. So, so there are people who are thinking hard about these kinds of ideas, um, but definitely we need to stop putting so much fossil fuels into the atmosphere. And this is a solved problem. We know what to do. And this is one of the things that's so frustrating about being a scientist is that I'm standing over here like waving my arms with all the rest of the scientists and Elon Musk and everybody else. Like, hello, we have a solution. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then, but trying to actually get that solution implemented has been this gigantic stumbling block. Um, and it's not, I think a stumbling block because regular people don't want it to happen. It's a stumbling block because fossil fuel companies don't want it to happen. Right. Right. Um, and so, so we have to get past the point where, uh, where we're, I'm, I should let me say something different. We have now gotten past the point where we're arguing about whether it's happening. Yeah. I think I mean, this year in the United States, I feel this real shift. Like, oh, it's definitely a thing. Right. Have you felt that? Because I haven't felt that. I feel like most of the people I've talked to still don't believe it. Um, that's too bad. Yeah. And maybe it's maybe, <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's my the group that I'm traveling in right now, but I do work in a, a you know, a predominantly conservative yeah. uh field. But I think I, what I'm seeing is that, like, when I go talk to congressional representatives and stuff now, they're no longer telling me it's not happening. Now they want to argue about what kinds of policies are reasonable to address it. Um, it seems pretty straightforward. Like, like, like we need. To me. I'm sorry. Yeah, that just feels like such a relief to me. Like, <laughs> you are no longer arguing about whether the ship is sinking. We're now arguing about how to get everybody into a lifeboat. This is like, I was like, yay! <laughs> yeah, or or maybe we just patch the boat, right? Right, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or start bailing water out or something. Yeah, let's, let's do something. Let's build yeah. some pumps. Have you ever heard right. of, um, have you ever heard of Potcrete? 
No. So it's a it's a commercial cannabis product that they uh you know, they basically grow commercial cannabis, and then uh, it's like sort of ground up, and they add uh, a couple of other ingredients, and I can't remember exactly what they were, but I think like lime is one of them, or maybe it's lye, and they pack this into forms and they build houses out of it. Uh huh. And it's super, it's like super fire resistant and it's really like got great insulation value. Um, and it, one of the things that it does is even actually, even after you, like if, if I came to your, your place and I built you a shed out of potcrete, as it's sitting there, it continues to get harder and harder because it continues to trap carbon, uh, or right. carbon dioxide from the environment in the walls. Uh huh. And yeah, I hadn't heard of this, but, um, but yeah, so let's just all start making all our roads and stuff out of that. Yeah, even yeah. if you even if we're just building like people are building sheds out of it, it's that's a drop in the bucket. We can start adding that to the plus side of the equation. Right. You know, even if that's just part of it. So I mean, it it, it seems like we really need to start focusing on ramping down on burning things. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I mean, I guess ever since the beginning of of humanity, we've been in love with fire for cooking and warmth. So it's hard to right. walk away from that. But we also need to ramp up our other technologies. Now, I hear a lot that if you're pro-turbine uh, wind power, then you're mm-hmm. also pro-natural gas. Because when the wind's not blowing, you have to burn something to generate that energy. Because humans don't want... We don't want to give up our energy. Mm-hmm. So, what do you say to the people that... Ju- I mean, I hear it a lot, and I'm probably a little bit in that camp. Um, but the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow... What do you say to that? I have a couple things to say to that. So one, the first thing to say is that the sun is always shining somewhere and the wind is always blowing somewhere. So the grid, right, which connects the electrical equipment all the way across the whole United States is actually in three sections right now because we built it in 1939 Um, as part of the Works Progress Administration drive to put people back to work after the Great Depression. So that grid is ancient. Uh, It's fragile, as you know, because you've seen it go down more than once in big chunks uh, in your lifetime. And uh, it is not set up to be smart. It's not set up to take electricity from where we're making too much of it and move it to where we're not making enough of it. So... Um, one of the things I think that horrified me most when I was really first starting to learn about how we generate and use power was that uh, coal-fired power plants are pretty much always producing electricity at the level of peak demand. That means that most of the day they're producing more electricity than they can use and they're just throwing it away. So where, it, where does that electricity go? Because they it, just... It doesn't just sit in the lines. Are they? Are I mean? Do they have like? They just they just let the steam escape from the turbines and and slow the turbines down. Wow! But they just let the energy from the coal just disappear. I'll bet the companies um, that mine coal love that policy. I bet they do. Yeah, I that's money do. in their pocket. Yep. And, yeah. And it's horrifying because it means that you know, like twenty three hours out of the day, you're making more electricity than you need in order that during that one special hour when everybody's doing the same thing all at once, you uh, can have the electricity available to you. Now imagine, because that tends to happen right after work, 
right? Like that uh-huh. six o'clock hour is typically peak demand. So imagine now we've got these all these time zones across the United States. We've got three hours worth of time zones. So if during that six o'clock hour on the East Coast, California was shipping them electricity, and then during the six o'clock hour in the Midwest time zone, you know, the East Coast was now shipping them electricity, like you could imagine leveling that out so that even just by updating the grid, you would reduce the amount of coal that's required to provide electricity for the country. And you and I would not notice a damn thing. So part of the so part of the solution is we need to upgrade how we transmit the energy, right? Because I I, then, I have because, heard transmission's a problem. Yep, and then as soon as you recognize that you could do that with coal, then it occurs to you, oh well, offshore the wind blows all the time, so you could have offshore turbines that take up the slack when local turbines can't get the job done. Right. And, right. we, and all we need, to, I mean, we were, we, I, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but we strung a cable. There's a cable draped mm-hmm. across the ocean from yep. uh, Europe to the United States, a data cable. Yeah, the transatlantic cable, it's called. Yep. So, uh, and that was done, that was done like back in telegraph times. Yeah. <laughs> like turn of the last century, we did that. So this is not, this is not a thing that we can't do. And in fact, we're building offshore, offshore turbines now. Um, kind of routinely. So this is a thing. We know how to do this. And we're, we're but, good at building things offshore. I mean, we have oil rigs already. Yep. yep. So as yep. we... And as if we, your wind turbines get exploded, who cares? But if your oil rig gets exploded, well, we all know what happens then. Oh, right. we saw that happen in the Gulf, right? Exactly. So, so what the heck? Let's replace all those oil things with long strings of wind turbines and go to town. Like, this is not a problem. Sure. So one of the things that I've kind of heard recently that seems to be bubbling up, and it was kind of touched on, I don't know if you've seen Bill Nye's, um, and we're going to have to talk about him because I think I watched you interview him. Yeah, Um, that was me. Yeah, okay, awesome. So I've seen you in in two venues then. Um, (laughs) Three if you count the phone. Um, So one of the things that they kind of touched on, on on one of his shows that's currently on Netflix, I think it's called Bill Nye Saves the World. Mm-hmm. Uh, was they kind of hinted at nuclear power as, as a possible, not really, I wouldn't call it a long-term solution, but it was definitely sort of like a stopgap. Yeah. And I asked you about it in the bar. And yep. now, unfortunately, because the lecture took place in a bar, I was available, <laughs> uh, I, I was allowed uh, alcohol. And I can't quite remember your, I, I remember you saying that like, uh, I mean, it could help, but it's not really a long-term solution, and that's just based off of we don't have enough uranium. Yeah, is that correct? So, so I have I have a couple of reasons why I'm kind of meh about nuclear power. One is that the if you were to just imagine, because it, it makes it easy to imagine the numbers. Imagine that you took all the fossil fuels and you replaced them with um, nuclear power plants that use uranium as fuel. Mm-hmm. Just imagine that you did. We have enough uranium in the world to sustain that for less than 100 years. Oh, really? I so, thought it was longer yep. than that. Interesting. No, 
So you would spend, you know, 40 years building all these nuclear power plants to replace the fossil fuel power plants, and then you would have 100 years, and then you would be right back where we are now. And that's based off the current model of nuclear power plants, which most people, I don't think, know. You probably know this, but the the light water reactors, right? Right. Okay. And and so there's that problem, right? The second, which which I think just gives you a sense of the scale. Uh-huh. If we don't move all the fossil fuels onto nuclear, of course, it's going to last longer. You can imagine that maybe you could start pulling uranium out of seawater, and maybe that would get you a longer period of time. But that's a really about, that's a really expensive process, right? Oh, it's ridiculous. You yeah. have to go through, you know, hundreds of gallons of water to find a single atom. Like, it's, it's really expensive to do. Um, and then, or you could talk about, like, breeder reactors. People love to talk about breeder reactors. And the problem with those is that you wind up sitting on plutonium for a long time. And so you wind up with these stockpiles that would be terrorist targets. And, I mean, on the one hand, how much do you want to, you know, make your whole world work around terrorists? But on the other hand, yeah, that's probably a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and plutonium is something that stays hot for a long time. It's like tens of thousands yeah. of years, I think. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Of oh, years, hundreds yeah. of thousands, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then we have this problem of nuclear waste, right? Which there's always these people who are like, oh, next year we're going to figure out what to do with nuclear waste. But I'll be super honest with you. We have had, since the 1960s, we've had nuclear reactors, and we have not yet found one single rational solution for what to do with the nuclear waste. And there have been so many near misses and so many accidents that have happened. My favorite one, can I tell you my favorite story about this? Please do. Because it's horrifying. <laughs> so there's this um, uh, there's this place, it's called WIPP, W-I-P-P, and it's in New Mexico. And this is a prototype site for storing nuclear waste. So what they've done is they've taken a salt mine where literally it's like salt all the way around on the inside and they've filled, you know, 55 gallon drums with nuclear waste and clay and stuck those 55 gallon drums in this um, salt mine to see if the salt prevents corrosion from water because the salt um, works with the water and keeps it away from the, from the, um, drums. So this is a test project, right? They're trying to prove that we can do this. So the idea is that then, because people people know that salt loves water and water loves salt. Like there's that process right. of osmosis going on. So right. the idea is that if we hide it in the salt, the water can't get to it because of the salt. Right. And that's the big exactly. concern is water getting to our nuclear waste supplies. Right, cuz then okay. it'll it'll corrode the barrels and then the yeah. nuclear the radioactive materials will get into the water and then the water will go into the groundwater and then you have these radioactive plumes, right? So in Hanford, in Washington, there's this giant radioactive plume that's about to reach the Columbia River from this process. They piled up a bunch of drums. The water has gone through it. It's in the groundwater now. It's on its way to the river. So um, so this is the problem they're trying to solve. Okay. So, but but I want to (laughs) reiterate that here you have This should be the best possible conditions, right? Because they're really trying hard to prove that they can get this done. So what happens? Well, what happens is that a mid-level manager looked at the price of the very specific kind of 
basically kitty litter, clay substrate that scientists had specked out and said, you need to get this stuff every single time. And he said, no, that's too expensive. It's just kitty litter. Let's go buy this other kind. Oh. So then they started filling the drums with this other kind of substance that wasn't what the scientists had specked out. And they started filling the drums with that stuff. And that stuff was reactive. And so by oh. the end of the year, after they decided to do that, they had an, a plume of nuclear gas that filled the salt mine and escaped and went straight to El Paso in the air. Oh, so my question is, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to argue about the physics or the, and even kind of the engineering, but the management, I think that we have not yet proven that we can manage something adequately for 50,000 or 100,000 years, which is what it takes for this nuclear waste to decay yeah. in order for people to stay safe. If we can't even do it during the test project, I don't believe it. I just don't have that much faith in people, middle management, sorry, middle managers, <laughs> <laughs> to listen to the scientists when the scientists tell them what they need to do. Well, I think it ties back to an interesting point because this manager decided to get cheap kitty litter mm -hmm. versus the specked out kitty litter. Yep. And again, it goes back to that same kind of that bottom line, that dollar amount, right? Yep. And that seems to be, and I remember the first time I bought an LED light bulb, I bought a floodlight for my backyard mm -hmm. and it, I, I actually didn't pay for it. It was a gift. Uh, someone took me shopping for it because I complained about it and right. it was like their big purchase for my house was a floodlight for me. Um, cause I just moved into a new home. It was my first home. And right. I remember buying this LED light bulb, but I knew I wanted LED because I had read, you know, the benefits and all that kind of thing. And I remember like, this is a hundred dollar white light bulb. Holy hell. And I almost just went back to a regular sort of like condescent floodlight uh -huh. instead of the led. But because of that dollar point, that, that price point. Yep. 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 And so it seems like, well, I, I mean, we can see it across the world. I mean, if you just look at cell phones and, mm -hmm all the other different little gadgets that we carry around with us every day and, and the things that we use our TVs and stuff like that, uh, new technology always starts out expensive. Yep. But then scientists come along and engineers come along and we work on things and they get better and they get cheaper. And I mean, you mm -hmm. think about like you talked about using the first computers to produce models in the seventies those computers were probably hundreds of thousands of dollars and took up warehouses. And now we have them in right. our pocket. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. You even those computers, probably you even have them in your coffee maker, right? <laughs> in your coffee maker, you have a computer that's more powerful than those. Right. <laughs> so, um, so that's, a, I mean, that's a thing that happens, right? That the price of technology comes down. And this is a place where, people can really get excited because the cost of solar panels has fallen like a rock and they are now demonstrably cheaper than any other way of powering an individual home. So, and the more people get excited about it and they buy those things, even, I mean, you know, yep. the heroes that buy it when it's the most expensive, uh, they drive that, 
they drive that research and that development that makes them smaller and cheaper and better. Yep. And better. More and, efficient. Yeah, because yep. I'm under the impression that uh, the solar panels are getting better. Yep. They're not so easily, like, you know, a hard water stain is not going to ruin the input that you're getting on your on your solar panel anymore. Yep. yep. Where, and and I, I know, I remember watching a little thing about, oh, if you cover up these two cells, you reduce it by, like, 70%. And that was, like, right. less, it seemed like less than 10% of the solar panel was covered up. Right. And now that's not quite the issue anymore. No, they've they've we've figured out how to do the electronics now, so that that's just not a problem. Yeah. Um, and even if now, even if you have one panel die, like the whole thing dies in your grid, the whole rest of them will work just fine. So, so this is this has all come a really long way. These are not your father's solar panels anymore, right? <laughs> this is a really great uh, technology, and it's the only truly modern technology. So people talk about nuclear all the time, and I really think that one of the things that people react to when we talk about nuclear is they have this emotional resonance. They're like, oh, it's so high-tech, we're harnessing the power of the atom. Oh, yeah. But we're not. We've been running we our... We really haven't. Is, we, what we do with nuclear power is we just pile up a bunch of hot stuff, and we use it to boil water and spin the spinny thing. Yeah. Like, that's it. That's it's the trick. The we we got to figure and out a way to spin the spinny thing. Right? <laughs> but... But solar panels are actually functionally different. So mm-hmm. they actually do something modern that Einstein figured out. So they run by the photoelectric effect, and this is actually modern physics. It's then, not just piling up a bunch of hot stuff. So I think they're they're fantastic. And really, um, if you like solar panels, you're, you're technically using nuclear power, right, from the sun to power yeah. your solar panels instead In of fact, spinning the using, spinny thing. Yeah. In fact, you're using fusion. Fusion. Which is even better than yeah. burning uranium, right? So, so I feel like every couple of years I hear rumors about cold fusion. Is is that just some it, kind of pipe dream? You know, it's one of those things where they're like, and and it's ten years out, and then ten years later they say it's ten years out. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so like they've they've managed to get it to work, but they can't replicate it. Well, they can replicate it and they can get it to work, but it always costs more energy than you get out. Oh. Okay, well, yeah. so that's technically not a power source then. No, it's not a power source. <laughs> they, can get, they can get the reaction to go, but you need to put more energy in than you get out. And so that's the thing that they're trying to get around. And I am, frankly, agnostic about this. Like, if, if they show up with fusion tomorrow, I'll be more excited than anybody. Yeah. But I'm not going to wait for it. No, that's smart. <laughs> so... I like um, how I like how I you use say, the term agnostic towards fusion. That's that uh, or cold, cold fusion. That makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just that's okay. I can just sit over there. Um, but I do want to circle back because we kind of got onto solar panels now, and I want to circle back to this, this discussion about how do you talk to people about it? Yeah, because um, I grew up in spending a lot of time with my grandparents in Pennsylvania, and they lived in Amish country. And one of the things that I really admire about Amish people is that they are always looking for ways. Let me put it another way. They refuse to sign up for things that are going to cost them every month. Because to them, that feels like usury, right? It feels like loans and lending and interest and all those kinds of things that in their religion are are a no-go. Right. 
So they won't sign. The reason that they won't sign up to have things like telephones in their house is because you would then have to pay for it every single month for the rest of your life. But if you go to Amish country now, what you'll see is all these places, all these Amish farms that have banks of solar panels in their fields because they can make money off from selling the electricity onto the grid and also because then they can use that electricity for their own purposes, but they've only paid for it one time and then they own it. And I want you to imagine just for a second that you're in your early 30s, right? Yeah. Imagine that you did not have utility bills for the rest of your life. Yeah, that would be... Imagine, imagine putting yourself in a position where, okay, you've paid off your mortgage now and you have no monthly expenses. Can you, I mean, like, you can barely even imagine it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe. Like, I've, I've cracked jokes. Like, if I won the lottery, I'd, I'd you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily stop working, but I wouldn't do something so challenging and stressful. Right? And then... Right? You, could, you could do what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah having my and house paid like, off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then imagine being a retired person on a, quote, fixed income, right? But you have no monthly expenses. Because your power is already paid for. Because you put solar panels on your roof. It took you three and a half years to pay off those solar panels. And now you're done. The, one and, of the and not, not necessarily of just life. paid for, but if I had those solar panels, I could probably make money. Not in Utah, you can't. But in other states, you can. Oh, and, and that's a legislature thing, though, right? That's a legislature thing, yep. Oh, huh. So, so maybe we should New be Jersey, talking to our legislatures a little bit. Yeah, in New Jersey, where I'm from, they have, um, if you make energy, you can sell it back to the grid at wholesale prices. So every church, now think about this for Utah, right? Because I think this is genius. Every church has their roof paved in solar panels because six days out of the week, there's barely anybody there to use the electricity. So six days out of the week, they're selling it to the grid at wholesale prices. They make more money off of that than they do by contributions from from congregational members. Every school is paved in solar panels because all summer the kids aren't there and they're just selling electricity back to the grid all summer long. We could potentially solve the deficit in our budget for education with mm -hmm. sunlight mm -hmm. is what you're getting at. Yep. And I mean... And at the Ugh. same time, solve the climate problem. It's it's crazy to think about because I know that I know that the church in Utah is sitting on a hundred billion dollars. Yep, they could easily afford to outfit their to outfit the their warehouses. their facilities. Yeah, with mm -hmm. solar panels and then sell that if if and <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, the church has some leverage on the legislature here if the laws changed. Yep. Wow. And that goes back to that dollar point. So we got to start kind of waving that carrot in front of them, I think. Yep. Oh, that's, that's crazy to think. And then, like you said, on top of that, now we're reducing the amount of carbon that's required mm -hmm. to be released in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then everybody's going to buy an electric car, which are now cheaper than gas and, cars. And cooler. They're getting, and to, cooler. they're getting to be ridiculously cool. I don't know if you know this, but the Tesla... Uh, there's an Easter egg, like a video game in the Tesla, where you can get it to dance to music. 
That's awesome. I've never seen it. I've, I think there's videos out there, and I, I one of these days I'll sit down and watch it. But I can't yeah. wait. I can't wait to get my Cybertruck. Right. And figure out how to get my Cybertruck to dance to Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. right. But I have to tell you, so I have I have a leaf, right, a Nissan leaf. Um, which was a perfectly reasonable price for a small sedan. And I love to drive this car. It is so responsive that when I get it, like now what I do if I need to go on a long, long drive, like to Fort Collins or something, I'll rent a car. And so I get into this gasoline powered car. And first of all, I can't believe how unresponsive it is. Like I put the, my foot on the gas and it, there's this like pause before it does anything. And I'm like, what the is that yeah like the engine then, has to wrap up and then the transmission's got to catch up to that oh my god it's so slow it's ridiculous and yeah. then and then when i have to stop and put gas in the car it's disgusting if you have gone a long time without putting gas in the car and then you pull up to a gas pump and you have to smell that smell and get it all over your shoes and all over your hands and stuff it's gross yeah but but even better i'll pull up to a stoplight and there will be some, you know, giant monster truck or Mustang or something next to me. And they're all revving their engines like, rah, 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 you little electric <laughs> car driver. And as soon as the light turns green, I slam on the accelerator and my car just straight across the intersection doesn't make a sound. Just sneaks right away from them. Zoom. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something I always thought was kind of interesting about those cars that I didn't expect was like the torque is just immediately available. Yeah. You have a hundred percent torque at zero RPM. Yeah. So it is so fun to drive. And so, it's, fun. so anyone who's never been in an electric car, it's kind of like a golf cart where you, you almost have to relearn how to drive because you yeah. don't expect it to be boom. Yeah. Like it does that. And I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about their Teslas and it, it, they have to relearn how to drive and, and, and not just relearn how to drive because of the acceleration, but the braking can be different too, right? The regenerative braking. Yep. yep. And as soon as you take your foot off the, off the accelerator, then it, the car starts to brake right away. And, you, um, and once you get used to that, then you get back in a gasoline powered car and you're like, oh my God, this is like, it's like talking to a slow talker. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's f- <laughs> like, come on, keep up, buddy. We're doing something here. <laughs> that's hilarious. I I never really thought about it that way, but that I mean that really. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like it's sort of like going back from your smartphone to a Nokia phone. Who who would do that once you've experienced right. a smartphone? Right. Exactly. So so to circle back, yeah. my point, right? If you were to put solar panels on every ward house in Utah, you could power up the whole place, not just the electricity for all the homes and the businesses and the, um, you know, schools and all that kind of stuff. But you would also be producing enough electricity that everybody could be driving electric cars. Now, you might talk to people who aren't that excited about climate change, but I bet they're upset about the air quality in the valley. Oh, yeah. Everybody's upset about it. I mean, uh one of the years that I was training for a half marathon, I had to put my training aside because mm-hmm. of the air quality. Right. And so, so imagine now that we take all those cars that are on the road and we give them zero emission. And we take the power plants out and we take the refineries out because we don't need them anymore. Right. So, 
so my point of this is that everything that you should be doing, that we as a group, as a society should be doing about climate change also improves all these other problems. It improves air quality. It improves people's independence. It improves um, the ability of people to, uh, well, it improves your, your driving of your car, right? Right. <laughs> um, it improves uh, national security because we don't have to buy oil from other places anymore. So we don't have to worry about the Middle East. Let them go hang. Like, let them go have their fights amongst themselves. We don't care. So, because we don't need them anymore. I mean, we're, it seems so utopian. Like when when we talk about it in that sense, it seems so utopian, but it it's also like kind of really achievable. Like now, mm-hmm. yeah, like now. I mean, it's like something that the church could lobby all of the people that it has in legislature. Which I mean, let's be honest, we all know they're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's supposed to be a separation between church and state, but we've seen how well that goes. Uh, the church could do that lobbying and then they could be the forefront of the energy generators for the state and really sort of just change the way things go. So, and if, and right now there are so many people who are out of work, who need a job, who need to be doing something that is maybe outside. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that work that could benefit the country. Well, there, right? we, we could put all those people to work. Right. In the factories, the delivery drivers, the installers, the salesmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the installers, especially, like, that's not a job you can outsource to China. That has to happen here. Yeah, that definitely goes on here. Yeah. Yeah. So we could, we could even just be, like, you know, employing all the unemployed people tomorrow if we just decided this was what we were going to do. Okay, I'm just thinking about like I'm 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 honestly I'm almost kind of speechless about it because I'm sitting here thinking about all the flat schools uh yep. that that I drive by and that's a perfect place to put solar panels and mm-hmm. then I mean it's not just I mean the the colleges the technical the technical schools even down like the DATCs yep. uh, type facilities And I live I live right next to the business depot in Ogden Oh tons of flat space There is so much roof space over there that could be used. You could just pave the whole place in solar panels. Oh, geez. And then, I mean, I, so I live out, uh, in the middle of Hooper and I've got, I've got property that I really don't Mm -hmm. use. My goats just sort of maintain it for me. Uh huh. And so like that space that I could, if I wanted to work towards being, you know, energy independent, I could solar panel those spots. Now, one of the things that I have heard people talk about uh, when I've brought up solar energy and Teslas are the batteries, the lithium batteries. Yep. And they're trying to, and, and I've, I haven't really done any research because when I hear it, I, I tend to forget about it because it just sounds like naysay to me. And yeah, uh, maybe I do need to do the research, but they are claiming to me that lithium is a super rare element to be able to put to work in the batteries and then the batteries themselves become a toxic uh, concern. What do you say to that? I say that since they were hearing about lithium batteries, we have figured out a way to make them a hundred percent recyclable. They're a hundred percent recyclable, recyclable. Really? Yep. Yep. So every lithium atom that goes into a lithium ion battery, you can take it out and you can use it again in a new battery. Wow. 
So I know I just recently watched, I've been watching some programs. There was Who Killed the Electric Car and then Revenge of the Electric Car. And then there was a battery mm-hmm. one. And there was this guy, he just was like working in a garage. He, he didn't, I mean, he wasn't like, you know, at a college, you know, working in a research facility or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And he had come up with these lithium batteries that he, he was able to like stab them with screwdrivers. And they were fine. Like they didn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, somebody's because I have an e-cigarette and it has the lithium ion battery in it. And if you puncture that battery, they'll burn and explode. Right. But this guy had added like salt water or something to them. Mm-hmm. And they were actually, this is the crazy part. This is what blew me away was the battery was malleable. It was like a sheet of rubber. And uh-huh. he, so if you had a, uh, you know, um, you you could technically you you could probably make like the top of your uh laptop a battery and then that would continue to wrap around to the bottom so the whole thing is now a battery and you could still open and close it right and then i got to thinking about it too when it comes to teslas and and those other kinds of things he could sort of just roll that up like a cigar and stuff it inside the frame rails and now he, you know, uh, to, to me, it just like I'm, I'm shocked. It, it frustrates me to feel like we're, uh, letting these opportunities go by. And if, if lithium is so rare, it sounds like maybe we should be conserving it for these purposes, these battery walls and banks and things. Mm-hmm. Especially and now that you tell me it's 100 percent recyclable. Yeah, lithium's rare, but it's not rare like germanium. You know, so, right. so there are there are more rare things that we need for to make solar panels and stuff out of, but not batteries. Um, so there are problems there, but those are all problems that have we have other options, right? So like the periodic table is arranged the way it is for a reason, and in general, when you are talking about building something atom by atom off of the periodic table, if you run out of something in one row, you drop down. So you drop down the column. And the next thing down behaves in a very similar fashion. So then you have to do a little bit of materials engineering to figure out how to make it work. But it's not an unsolvable problem, and it's not something we don't know how to do. So we, we, could, we, we could potentially shift from lithium being our main battery source to something below it on the periodic yeah. table. Or, or we just, um, once you have the grid in place, then the only place you need those batteries is in moving things. And... So that's things like cars and trucks. Um, And then we even have other options that we can try there. So you can, instead of storing energy in batteries, you can store it in hydrogen. So you can use your solar panels to tear water apart and make hydrogen and oxygen that are separate. And then you can burn that hydrogen to put it back together with the oxygen. Now, I love that idea because I've done the hydrogen experiment in my own garage. Right, yeah, and you do it in like you do it in sixth grade or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super easy, and I I remember like my daughter was just sort of like stunned. She was like, "You just made a fireball, right?" And yep. And then I even said to her, "I said, look, like that potentially can power a car, but not only could it power a car, but if you think about the waste product, what what yep. happens when you burn hydrogen and oxygen? You get water. You get water back again, right? And don't and we so all love water? The reason- Yeah, and the reason we don't do it now is because we have the same gas problem again, right? Like, so hydrogen is a gas, and so it floats. So if you wanted to put a whole bunch of hydrogen stations around, like we have gas stations now, when you had a spill, it wouldn't just lay on the ground. 
it would become airborne. And then you'd light up the whole place, which would be really horrible. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so the containment of the hydrogen is a problem, but that's only a problem um, if you're storing large quantities of it. Uh, and, you know, people are working on it. They're working on ways to, to lock up that hydrogen. In the meantime, we could all get busy putting solar panels around so that we can power our houses off of them and then get our electric cars. So we're running our electric cars. And then by the time the batteries are starting to be really, really a problem, we should have this whole hydrogen fuel cell thing figured out. So I, I think it's, this is what I mean when I say that the scientists are all standing over here, waving our arms, like, hello. Yeah. Look at us. We've sorted it out. So So we know what to do. So it's a matter of political will it's a matter of deciding that we want to get this done and we're going to get it done so you kind of glazed over trucks and cars really quickly you sort of put the two together but i've been Mm -hmm. a truck driver for almost 15 years of my life Mm -hmm. and in the course of doing that i've constantly heard that things like tractors and semis and you know big trucks how we deliver our concrete and things like that that I, I, I'm told constantly that they can't produce the torque they need with electricity to run those vehicles for the distances that those vehicles are required to travel. That's a battery problem, yeah. That's a, so, so, I mean, we can definitely produce the torque, but the storage of the energy is the issue. Right. Okay. So, so we only have batteries big enough to supply the amount of torque that you need for, like, a mile. This doesn't, not very helpful. <laughs> so... Um, so Tesla though, right, has come out with this truck, uh, that's like a semi sized truck. Um, and I can't remember what the specs are on that now. And I don't have the Tesla truck. I, I I know a little bit about it. I think it can go 400 miles on a charge. Yeah. So they're working on that end on the battery end, but then on the other end, we have planes, right? And planes now they're starting to build them to run off of hydrogen fuel cells. So this is a thing that we've got prototypes for now. So that's the other end of the problem of trying to close the fuel loop, right? So, um, so I think we're we're really getting there, and it's right that kind of stuff is right around the corner, and the rest of these problems are solved. So when I think about it, what I think is that I really want us to save the diesel fuel and the gasoline for the things that we we don't know the answer to yet. So, and we should stop using it for the things that we know the answer to. So if we absolutely need diesel to farm, for instance, then we should, preserve then we should it be farm. using it for farming. Yep. And, and not just, and not just uh, you know, hot rodding around Ogden Boulevard. Yeah, don't get me started on the burning coal people, or the rolling coal <laughs> The people. rolling oh coal, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're punishing themselves because it only costs them money every time they do it. So, <laughs> I just pulled up some specs really quick on the tesla truck because i i've talked positively about the tesla truck and i've been told oh no that's not good enough uh for truckers Mm -hmm. it's never going to work um by other truckers um but it'll go from zero to 60 with eighty thousand pounds on which is which is your typical semis basically you know when they pack them they're eighty thousand pounds is their legal weight Uh you can go from zero to 60 in 20 seconds which sounds like a long time but for eighty thousand pounds that's a that's That's actually relatively quick yeah It'll do 60 miles an hour up a 5% grade, which is a pretty steep grade. That's pretty steep, yeah. Yep. 
And it says the mile range is between three or 500 miles. And I'm guessing that depends on what you buy, uh, which package you buy. Yeah. And it's only using two kilowatts per mile. Yeah. So they're saying based off their, uh, based off of their uh, calculations, your fuel savings are 20 or $200,000. And I don't know if that's per year or what, but, or maybe it's the lifetime of the, of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're expecting those to only be $150,000. And that's really what we're already paying for semis. Right. Right in that area. Yeah. And then imagine not having to pay for gas again. Yeah. Like, and then your yeah. warehouse where you keep all these trucks and store all the things that you haul in those trucks have mm-hmm. big flat roofs so that we could cover in solar panels. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, uh. It almost makes me feel dumb. Like I feel dumb for being a part of humanity right now. Like I should have, I should have left because it's just not like, we're not really thinking things through, are we? No. Well, and I mean, part of the problem, right? Part of the problem is that everybody's like in their heads, five or 10 years behind thinking about the tech. So for whatever reason, people are not really aware of the advances that have been made in the last decade or 20 years, even. Right. They're just they're like still thinking about solar panels like their 1970s solar panels. And I don't understand it because everybody expects that the next new phone is going to be super amazing. But we so don't I don't know why they don't expect <laughs> or batteries or, or, or cars or uh, right. and there's... they hear something that like reinforces the way they want to think about it, which is I want to be lazy and not have to think about it. Yeah. And and then they just stick there. And getting them to recognize, no, no, we've come a long way. Actually, go Google it. It's not hard to find out. This information um, is a little bit challenging. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're rapidly approaching noon, and I know you said you had kind of scheduled to be oh, yeah. out till about noon. So what would you, yeah, you can tell it was a good conversation because we lost track of time. I just looked up and mm-hmm. realized it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what would be your sort of like your closing notes to maybe someone who's on the fence about climate change, what would you say to them? I would say, what do you care about? Do you care about air quality? Do you care about saving money? Do you care about, um, not about being able to retire early because you have no monthly payments? Do you, what do you care about? And I guarantee you that if you see a problem in society and you care about it, if you trace that back, you're going to find that the way that you solve that problem is also going to help us with climate change. So get to work. Find the things you care about and start trying to fix them. I love that message. That's a really good message. So to round things out on kind of a positive note, because climate change is always kind of a doomsday subject. Uh huh. Who, living or dead, real or fake... What are the five people that you would spend an afternoon with? Oh, number one is Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin. And she was a, a scientist and astronomer early in the 1900s. She was like right around 1920. And she figured out what the universe is made of. And I would love to sit down with her and talk about that. Wow. Um, I would love to sit down with Queen Elizabeth I. After (laughs) her Navy Navy pounded the crap (laughs) out of Spain. (laughs) 
I want to sit down with her and talk to her about that because she was a badass. <laughs> um, Ian's going to love would, that, by the way. Yeah. I, I would like to... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I was just going to say, I always tease him that uh, the Qu- Queen Elizabeth is his aunt, and I can't wait to get her on the show. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. I would like to sit down with her, too, because, man, she's amazing. Um, I would like to sit down with... Uh, uh, any number, I can think of two or three people right off the top of my head, like Charlotte Dujardin and Stephen Peters, who are both really high, uh, top of the game dressage riders. So I have horses and I ride dressage and they are like Olympic level riders and I would love to sit down and pick their brains um, about that. And I would love to sit down with Carl Sagan. He was a huge inspiration to me when I was younger. I watched the original Cosmos and was riveted by it when I was young. Um, and think he just has this amazing ability to see, sorry, had this amazing ability to see the world and to feel passionately about it, um, in a secular way that really appeals to me. And he, and he um, was good at sharing it. He, he didn't make and, people feel dumb. I feel like, and Neil deGrasse right. Tyson's pretty good at that too. Yep. Yep. At sharing the ideas and being kind of positive and whole, like holistic about it, like really just wonderful people to talk to i think um so i don't know if that i don't know how many that was but that was that was right at five yeah yeah perfect so and i guess kind of my last big question because i'm a little bit i mean i was raised watching bill nye whenever we had a substitute in science and it was something that i looked forward to watching at home and now i've got to sort of like I don't want to say grow up with Bill Nye because he was already an adult when I was a kid, but I've got mm-hmm. to watch him mature from the wacky zany science guy to Bill Nye saves the world. And he's still a little zany, but what, how, like, were you, were you sort of starstruck when you got to sit down and interview him? You know, here, there's a funny story about that. So when I met him, I had just read this book called Code Girl, which was all about the women cryptographers in world war ii who broke the japanese code oh which uh, his mother did which his mother did so when i talked to him somehow or other that came up like super early in the conversation because we were talking backstage before i interviewed him in front of everybody and and i mentioned that book and he mentioned that it was his mom and then we just went off on this whole thing both of us fangirling about his mom <laughs> that's awesome so, so that that put me at ease really really quickly and it's funny because a lot of people say you know oh bill nye he seems so amazing but he's really kind of a jerk in person and as soon as i got into the room with him i was like oh he's not a jerk he's a scientist yeah like he no. does this thing where you tell him something and he's like no i don't believe you prove it <laughs> You know, <laughs> he talks back. Like, he, talks he talks back. back. Yeah, he does that thing that I was talking about at the beginning, where you just get heckled. <laughs> like this is how we relate to one another. We heckle each other all the time, and you never get to make enough unsupported and unsubstantiated statement. So, um, well, so I have, I found I, I have to, to imagine. Oh, that's awesome! I'm glad that he's charming because I have to imagine that being in the spotlight, like he has been. Yeah. It has to wear on you and be difficult. And I know he talked about in one of his uh, one of the shows that kind of followed him around as he interviewed Ken Ham uh, or looked at some of the things Ken Ham's been doing. Yeah, uh, that guy. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. I'm <laughs> so. There's a reason why I'm an atheist, and it's like because yeah. when I see the other side of it, I'm like it, it. The opposite has to be true. 
Oh my uh, God, Ken Ham would drive you right out of believing that the that the sky is blue, right? If he said the sky is blue, I would be like, that's no, not. Yeah, I'd be like, no, it can't be. It can't. Like now that you say that, there's something wrong with my eyes. There has to be. Yeah. Oh, uh, just oh, it drove me nuts. And then to just sort of see Bill as he's he's just trying to travel and look at things as a scientist and be a part of the scientific community, and he's just sort of bombarded with people taking his picture. And mm-hmm. one of the things uh, I had. I brought his book to that thing and was hoping to buy his new book and get a signature, but we had bought the wrong ticket, I guess. I didn't realize there was a special mm-hmm. ticket. So mm-hmm. we did miss out on that. But I think it's funny to watch him in that documentary teach people how to take selfies properly. <laughs> it makes me laugh. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to me about climate change it's it's nice to have somebody because i i feel like i say a lot of the things that you're saying but i don't necessarily have the experience to back it up and so having somebody mm-hmm. with your experience doing the science and looking at the data i think lends a lot of credibility to it and it's not just something that i mean you're not saying it to make a profit i'm not saying it i'm certainly not saying it to make a profit mm-hmm. um so I'm glad that there are people like you that are out there working on the problem because I worry every day, what kind of world am I going to leave my daughter in the future? And hopefully I leave her in a world where she doesn't pay for her utilities. Right. Yeah. Right. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, like it's, be amazing. it's, it's bizarre to think of because it's like now do like, should I start looking forward to the future and investing in solar panels for her? And then one day when she has a place and she can put them up, she then no longer has to worry about paying the light bill. Right. So, or at least recommend that, you know, if she ever builds a house or buys a new house, just fold the solar panels into the cost of building the house. Yeah. You'll never even notice it if it shows up in your mortgage. Yeah, so. exactly. Over the course of 30 years or 15 years, hopefully she's smart and she does a 15 year. But Right. Well, thank you so much. And I, I look forward to, uh, I look forward to uh, getting you actually in the studio when this COVID thing kind of wraps up. Oh, that'll be a good time. Yeah. The uh, after time. I'm oh, looking forward to it. I'm so excited. I'm going to be the first in line for the vaccine. I don't care if Jeff Bezos put microchips in it. I'm getting that shot. Sure. Yeah, I carry my phone with me all the time anyway. Exactly. <laughs> what are they going to know with a chip that they don't know with my phone? And he's he's done a really good job managing Amazon, so I feel like yeah. he could probably do a pretty good job managing me. Sure. So I'd be fine with that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, and... Uh, yeah, again, I look forward to it. I, I can't wait to see you in person and, and maybe get even more into depth. And uh, uh, Do you know the next time you're going to be doing a bar lecture? Or, or are you I hiding don't. away? It's going to be the after time for the sure. The after times, yep. yeah. All right. Yep. yep. Well, I'll look forward to it. I hope to, I hope to see another lecture soon. Thank you so much. All right, Brady. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. It was a great conversation. All right. Bye. Bye. Peace.